Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Hi everyone, welcome to Nightlight. Um, you know, we'll be covering a little of everything Ken Quinehawk states in his wonderful intro as an extension of Mother's Day. Uh, we'll be delving into topics such as the differences found in twin mermaids like the West Coast one who is so chatty while the East Coast one quietly eats garlic rolls. Bigfoot families, marine cryptids, and right before uh, we went live, we, we learned of the possible evolution of talking cats. We'll, we'll see how that one pans out later in the show. Um, we're bringing another new voice to Nightlight Part 2 tonight. Um, there won't be a rehash of last week's uh, you know, guest theory on UFOs, and we aren't going to be uh, uh, here like ha how to become the next Gandalf and lead your band of hobbits to the sunny parts of the Shire. Um, Barbara and I are trying to continue to develop quality programming based on new books and insights to unusual aspects of life. So, you know, that's the way we design the show. Uh, we are bringing a variety of topics each week, um, and we thank you for helping us to grow. Uh, please visit Barbara's website, barbaradelong.com, to see the selection of over 600 shows and if you like the diversity, um, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or the uh, newsletter. Um, Max Hawthorne is our guest tonight. He is the author of the Kronos Rising novel series and Memoirs of a Gym Rat. He is an amateur paleontologist frequent radio guest and will be starting his own 
Facebook live stream show soon on the Skydoor Network. He holds a world record for catching a fish, which we'll learn about in just a minute. Uh, Max's website is maxhawthorne.com. How are you? Hey, Mark. <clears throat> Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, we want to he- hear first about um, this world record fish. Did uh, did you catch this prize fish near Pompano Beach? What kind of fish was it? What what was the size? Um, I, I actually don't get into details about the particulars of that species because the fish was kept, and uh, you know it's something that I've since become opposed to. I guess you'd say, but <clears throat> I mean I've caught several world record species of fish. Uh, you know, since that time I've released them. Uh, the one the nearest one in Florida would have been, gosh, at least a, a decade ago when I was down there in the Keys. And uh, we were fishing, and I hooked what at first the captain was worried was going to be an enormous sawfish, which is, a, of course, a protected species wow. of, you know, of great concern. Yeah, well, you saw this enormous orangish thing deep down. You know, you couldn't bring it up. It was very powerful, and I wasn't using super heavy tackle. But uh, it turned out to be the biggest nurse shark he'd ever seen, uh, and to this mm-hmm. day would dwarf the existing all tackle world record. But you know, I didn't want to kill the fish, so we cut it loose. But it was somewhere between 350 and 450 pounds. I think the record right now is only 260-something or something. But, uh, you know, and out of Montauk, New York, gosh, mm-hmm. that's got to be two decades ago, I released a, a blue shark that was over 12 feet long that would also wow. still be the world record, and that fish was calculated over 700 pounds. But, you know, there's there's a lot of great things out there. I like to have a lot of adventures on the water, et cetera. I'm just not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very conservation-minded, I guess you'd say. I've even written articles mm-hmm. to protect species like the Goliath grouper from being overexploited and killed, so. Okay. Well, sounds very exciting. Okay. Uh, uh, and speaking of fishing trips, um, one of America's greatest novels, Moby Dick, is about the one that got away. Uh Melville based it on actual you know, captain's logs uh, and other reports from the very early 19th century. Uh, there really was an albino whale spotted in the Pacific, and there is an account of a whale sinking the Essex, which mm-hmm. was incorporated into uh, Moby Dick. Uh, you know, you know, these eyewitness accounts do make for uh, captivating reading, but they do set a uh, precedence. Uh, and you, you know, you've seen these reports that that there is an albino whale in the Atlantic. What is that? Pretty, you know, yeah, it, it, it is. Is that you know, like a, a rarity, like the white buffalo, or? Well, there's um, <clears throat> there's uh, several different species of whales that have uh, white versions. I don't know that they're necessarily albinos, Mark. They may be. They oh. look to me more like leucistic, meaning that they they still have pigmentation. Like their eyes will be blue instead of like pink or red. 
you know, but they're mm-hmm. just a, a white, snowy white color. There's a famous humpback whale. I don't remember his name, to be honest. Um, that's, you know, quite the uh, spokesperson, I guess you'd say for that, quite the photo hog. Um, but the, uh, the, the sperm whale um, was originally documented in the TV show Monster Quest about 11 years ago off the Azores. And he was uh, well, well, an infant at the time, I guess you'd say, and almost a newborn. And they managed to get brief footage of him, but they had a very tough time because uh, sperm whales live in large family units, you know, females, adolescent males, and the, their offspring, not the large, you know, dominant males typically. But, uh, and so they had this white baby that they get brief footage of, but the, the cows were so aggressive protecting the little one that they really couldn't get much or get near it. You know, you get attacked by a mm-hmm. you know, 35 to 45 foot pistol of whale, you've got a problem on your hands. And uh, the, the, the fact that the whale would live to maturity, I mean, it's easier, of course, when it lives in a family group where it's got protection, because being all white, it doesn't blend in with the rest of its surroundings. You know, sperm whales have few enemies when they're large, but a baby would be susceptible to attacks, let's say, by orcas, the kind of you know, subspecies orca that preys on marine mammals, other whales, etc., and who knows, maybe even some unsavory uh, Homo sapien types. You know, but it appears from the last photos I've seen that the whale is uh, still alive, and I've seen some recent photos of him still in the Azores in that same area, and uh, you know he's grown quite a bit in the last 11 years, and he's on his way to becoming a real-life Moby Dick, which is. You know, uh, wow. something to see. Yeah, I actually had, like, like before I even knew about him, I had featured uh, in my first novel as a part of one of the characters' backstories. Uh, she has an encounter where there's a, uh, like, an adolescent bull, a white bull sperm whale whose name was Avalanche, as in, you know, snow, snowy avalanche. She was all white. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and her team were trying to protect the whale from hunters uh, who basically had hired like some professional people to go out there, kill this whale so they could, I guess, hang its head in their corporate office or something. And uh, so that was part of the backstory. And then I had, of course, Avalanche made a reappearance in a, another novel, <clears throat> you know, along with some other stuff. But anyway, not to digress. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's every once in a while it seems like it's kind of a common occurrence that uh, someone might get a photo of a uh, uh, white or you know, albino a deer or squirrel see it every once in a while um, it, it, you know it, it, it's just really interesting you know, as we kind of get started on looking at a, a lot of these anomalous uh, marine creatures um that this, you know, we had these reports going you know, back to 300 years or so, and you know, still, you know, still see that the same type of uh, animal in the wild uh, t- today. It's just, uh, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, there's not. I mean, you, you have like first off the odds of one being born white when it's not its natural protective coloring, is extremely mm-hmm. rare to begin with. And then, of course, you have the pressure factor, whether it's going to live to adulthood. I mean, if, you, if you're a squirrel and you have to worry about a hawk swooping down and getting you, you know, it's one thing if you're a gray squirrel that blends, blends in with gray bark. 
if you're a white squirrel sitting on bark, you know, you're standing out like it's an eat at Joe sign. So you're really going to have to be on yep. your toes in order to make it. You know, there is one thing when you mentioned the Essex and its encounter, because that's a true story. That ship was struck and sunk with a loss of life by a, a very large bull sperm whale. And uh, in fact, I believe and it's been a while since I read this ages, but I believe the whale actually rammed the ship head on and it stunned itself. And, you know, because it hit the prow of a huge wooden ship that was even bigger than it. And then it drifted sideways so it was actually alongside the ship at one point and the people who were on board the ship had gotten a measure of it compared to the length of the ship and they swore on a stack of bibles that the whale was around 85 feet long which is an enormous sperm whale that would Mm -hmm. be like 150 tons or something like that like blue whale mass or something and uh, then of course the whale regained consciousness or you know whatever you want to call it you know he was no longer punched Mm -hmm. he came back he broadsided the ship caved in the you know, its flank and the ship sank. But uh, so the interesting thing is, though, is there are documented uh, occurrences of sperm whales that size and pushing that size um, going back early, you know, in the 1900s and stuff from Russian whaling records, et cetera, even, you know, the 1920s or 30s, where they were killing and butchering and, of course, measuring bull sperm whales that were 75, 80, even 84 feet in length. And now they don't get anywhere near that size. They they pass 60 feet. It's something, you know. So we've unfortunately and sadly decimated their their breeding stock, their genes, their gene pool by killing off all the big alpha males. And you know, I can only hope that, given time and protection, that those genes are still in there somewhere, and they'll be able to come back out. I hope so too. And you know, since. You know, you're, you're uh, getting us started with you know, some of these um, examples from uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Uh, yeah, there's a, another sighting um, of of a that one sounds more like a cryptid. Not it has nothing to do with a, uh, a a whale, but there's some type of creature swimming uh, alongside of a Carnival cruise ship. I was seen by a lot of people on out the windows and on the deck and stuff. Can can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, I think you're um, you're referring to the Carnival Cruise Monster, uh, a name I yes. coined when I, I got to interview um, Mr. Paul. But um, yeah, he's a, <clears throat> a UK resident, great guy, by the way. Um, and he had, uh, I believe, the sighting, and I don't have anything in front of me, was in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And he That's was working. Recent. Yeah, yeah, he was working. Um, as a fitness person on the Carnival Cruise Line ship, I believe it was the Breeze. And uh, when this happened, they were, uh, they'd been away at sea for a couple of days now. They were in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. I think it was uh, like late summer, like August or September, something. And um, he got called over 
you know, they were on the top deck by a small crowd of, uh, you know, passengers, and they <clears throat> they were very excited because they saw something swimming alongside the ship, and they called him over and they said to him, uh, you know, can you tell us what that is? And he looked down, and <clears throat> a couple, swimming a couple hundred feet away from the ship. Now keep in mind, a cruise ship is enormous. I don't know if you've ever been on one. I mean, I've gone to Disney, you know, cruises a lot, and these things are the size of a modern-day aircraft carrier. You know, the carnival. Yeah, they're ones big. Are, yeah. So I mean, this thing posed no threat to the ship or anything. But uh, I mean, they, they, these things weigh over a hundred thousand tons or something. You know, it's like a small city on the move. But uh, there was an enormous marine animal that was keeping pace with the ship, and uh, he Paul was completely unfamiliar with it. He saw it was running parallel to the ship, first off, which is interesting, which shows you it was either used to ships or unintimidated, let's put it that way. And it was also capable of considerable speed because I researched all this stuff, and they, those cruise ships, they average, when they're on their way, a speed of about 20 or 21 miles an hour or something like that. So that's you know a pretty good clip. That's like the speed of a... Mm-hmm a cruising blue whale or something like that. I mean, they can go faster at speed, but this thing was like putting out no effort, as he put it. And uh, <clears throat> he said that he could see, you know, it was just below the surface parts of it. And he could see the head and the neck and part of the upper back. And that was basically it. So the rest of it was presumably like drooped down a little bit, you know, and it was just kind of surfacing to get air or whatnot. And uh, he said it, he was familiar. He'd seen whales and whale sharks and all sorts of sharks in his time at sea, et cetera. And he said this was none of those. It was much, much bigger. I mean, the size of a very large blue whale, let's say, but much more massive. Um, he described it have, as having a head that was shaped like like an enormous alligator or crocodile. And it wasn't a really thin snout, but it was definitely sort of tapered, like triangular a very thick neck. And then he described it as having what he called like traps, like these enormous things you saw under the surface, like that sort of flared out, you know, like giant shoulders or something like that. And, you know, we had discussed this thing at length and, you know, he came to the conclusion that uh, it's quite possible that what he was seeing was pectoral fins that, you know, these, this thing had spread out, you know, to keep it on plane or whatever, as it was swimming, you know, they controlled their up and down, you know, like the diving planes mm-hmm. on a submarine. You know what I'm right. Um, but yeah, he said he described it in you know, glorious detail. I mean, he, its skin was like like black or super dark gray, possibly with some little like gray like flecks on it. The skin was smooth, kind of slippery looking. Um, he said that uh, it had. He didn't see any teeth or anything like that. Uh, you know, it was you know, the head was so semi submerged, and all of its back just barely broke the surface. Uh, it did not blow like a whale. You know, like when a cetacean surfaces and there's an explosion of water vapor, et cetera, it didn't do that. He said that as the head near the surface, all the water around the head turned like whitish, which is something more similar to what we see in turtles or crocodilians, where they release small air bubbles as they, you know, come up. Well, I guess they're more stealthy than a whale, you know, since they're predators and they stalk things or whatnot. But, uh, of course, if an animal that size, it would you know, those bubbles would be magnified by a million or whatever. So, you know, the water, the water turning white made perfect sense. Um, but he said that uh, it, you know, it breathed or whatever, and then it, it submerged back down. It kept pace with the ship for a little bit more. And then and then it turned and it veered away, like on a 45-degree angle. It was on their port side, if I recall, when this happened. And uh, as it started to swim away, he actually took a photo of it. And... Uh, 
in the next port. He uh, was in a bar and something happened, and he lost his phone. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That's the that's the uh, cleaned up version, I guess, or whatever. But you know, the, you know, the whatever. There was a partying going on in a bar at the next port, and his phone was lost, and we never got a photo of it. We'd actually, when I did the interview, put it a thing out there if anybody other passengers had had a photo of this thing, et cetera, because he said a couple people had their phones out. You know, that we wanted them to come forward, et cetera. But uh, from what his description, the part of it that he saw, which was just from its head, the tip of the snout, let's say, to maybe the upper back, was a solid 50 feet in length. And he compared that to like the lifeboats that they have, which are down below there, as you can see from the top deck. And this thing was much, much larger, you know, the part of it that they saw than the boats, which are I, I checked somewhere in like around 37 feet long or something like that. You know, the big motorized lifeboats that they have. So this thing was much longer, much more massive than these boats. So he had something viable to compare it to get, you know, an idea of the scale. You know, it's hard to see. You see something in the water, it's hard to say like how big that is. But if you have a Right. Right, right below you, and you're looking down at it, and you've seen these boats in the water for drills when they lower them and stuff like that. You know, he was able to get an accurate estimate in terms of how big this thing was. But how big the whole thing was, who can say? You know, I mean, it it would have definitely been much, much bigger than 50 feet, though. Okay, and where was this sighting? It was in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, that. About, okay, he said it was a day or two off, away from shore already, so it would have been far out in the Gulf. It wasn't near shore or anything like that. Is since 2014, mm-hmm. is there some kind of new discovery of a deep Type creature that that has been found. Yes, like is there anything in the literature that can help to identify what the people on the cruise ship saw? Well, we went through everything and anything. I mean, I threw photos at him of you know beaked whales and sperm whales and. You know, things living and dead and everything I could possibly think of, basking sharks. I mean, you name it, I was throwing it at him. And he's like laughing. He's like, dude, I know what that is. You know, it wasn't a squid. You know, a squid seemed like a viable possibility at one point because there are anecdotal reports and even non-anecdotal reports of squid reaching gigantic sizes, you know. So, I mean, it wouldn't have surprised me if he saw a squid that size that was, you know, pacing along, et cetera. You know, that type of thing, but it, he was absolutely adamant that it was not that. You know, we couldn't find anything, any extant species that came anywhere near it. And you got to keep in mind, the size of the thing is a real factor also. I mean, it had skin like a leatherback sea turtle. You know, it was the best description, like mm-hmm. dark and smooth, that type of stuff. It was definitely a marine animal. He said it, was, it looked reptilian to him. Um, but we couldn't find anything. The closest we could we could come up with, and it, I drew like a, a profile of one being seen from the top, just like a shadowy thing in the water. And he said, "That's it, that's it." And what I drew was an interpretation of, of a like a Mosasaurus Huffmani or something swimming in the water and just barely coming up for air and barely submerged, you know, or submerged. So based on his description, and he he and I seem to you know, agree, he feels like it, it may well have been 
an enormous extant mosasaur um, that was cruising in the Gulf of Mexico. And keep in mind, there are have been many, many sightings of you know of this type of thing. I mean, his is like one of the biggest or the biggest I've heard of in terms of mass and stuff. But you know, around New Zealand, there's dozens of them. All that whole area, it seems like a like a hot spot for this type of thing. You know, we could I could rattle off listings for your sightings and stuff. But uh, you know, that sounds like like an adult, you know territorial male or whatever in its prime, you know, like a species maximum. He said this thing had no fear of anything. And it was very laid back. It wasn't worried about anything. He said it looked like a submarine when it surfaced, the water streaming off its back. It was that big, et cetera. And he said mm. nothing, could, nothing could stand up to this thing. You know, oh, there was one other interesting point that he touched on also, which was that at that same time period um, out of Sanibel Island, there were two sightings, one of which there's a video of, of uh, what, uh, and one is definitely is somebody I spoke to, but um, like these, this couple in Santa Island there, they filmed something grabbing a manatee, and there's video footage of this, and they said wow. that it was about the size of a bus. It went under their boat, and then it grabbed a manatee and wrapped it up, pulled it under, and I believe it was an enormous octopus. And my belief is strengthened by this, but because of the fact that um, a guy I know that I spoke to and interviewed about this, he was off Sanibel like the next day or something, or day or two later when this happened, and he was on a 55-foot fishing boat that they chartered, and they were sitting there. And and when he told me this, by the way, he thought that this was normal, just to give you an idea. Like when I told him, no, that's not normal, you know, he was quite surprised. But he described that him and his friend were sitting there, and keep in mind, it's a smelly fishing boat, sitting there just drift fishing, and a tentacle comes up, breaks the surface, and 30 feet of the tentacle comes out of the water on the surface, not up, but on the surface, snakes toward them, and starts to touch the sides of their boat. He said the tentacle was definitely from an octopus, the skin, he could see the suckers, etc. He said it ranged from two to three feet in thickness as it went further back. And it was like touching carefully, just touching their boat. And then it withdrew, went back under, and then it was gone. They were only 20 feet away from this thing when this happened, okay, on the looking down at it. And he thought that this was normal. Oh, that's what an octopus looks like. And I'm like, no, that's not what an octopus looks like. <laughs> you know, you only saw part of a tentacle. You didn't see the body, the rest mm -hmm. of the tentacle, et cetera. You know, and a three-foot-thick tentacle is indicative of an enormous animal and that's not as thick as it got you know because they didn't see the body i mean this thing just lifted up an arm and just you know explored it and i explained to him that the reason that this happened and i've you know i've written books with the kraken in there my kraken has been enormous octopus um you know when you write novels you want realism you know, you want to achieve that suspension of disbelief for your readers so that when they read it, they feel like this is a real living creature, that they're in the moment, and there's, you know, there's, you know, it could happen, okay? So I do extensive research, and <clears throat> octopi, octopuses, same thing, um, they have what are called chemoreceptors in their suckers, you know, the suction cups, we'll call them on their arms, right? and those taste things, see? So this creature was tasting the boat, when it came out there, when it touched it, mm -hmm. et cetera. Okay. And it must have smelled, you know, that maybe they're putting chum in the water, you know, they're fishing, there's fish blood, et cetera, he's looking for a meal, 
And a cephalopod that size would undoubtedly be able to prey on a whale. You know, so I think it looked at this boat, the shape sitting there, and it's like, oh, is this a sleep whale, a drifting whale, or better yet, a whale carcass, in which case it would have, like, wrapped it up and started trying to feed. But after it tasted the hull and it was like, oh, this is metal or fiberglass or whatever it was, you know, it changed its mind and it withdrew. So they were actually very lucky because that animal could have been 70, 80 feet long, maybe more. I mean, you know, include the mantle, wow. the rest of the, the arms, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, and if it attacked the boat and, start, and came in contact with a person, who's to say it's not like, oh, well, here's a, an hors d'oeuvre at least. Let me just have this, you know, et cetera. But I think this is the same animal that fed on that manatee in Sanibel Island. They were actually outside of Sanibel where their boat was, my, my friend. So, and he said when they called the Coast Guard and they reported it, the guy was like, yeah, he goes, we just had a report like that yesterday or something, you know. So it was either the same animal or more than one that migrates into that area. I personally believe that they go there to feed on manatees. You know, they're looking for a large, nutrient-rich, defenseless meal. And that's what a manatee is. It's just basically like a pork, pork roll, you know. <laughs> it can't fight. It can't defend itself. It's not fast. You know, or anything like that. You know, if you look at the, all the listings of sightings in Hawaii of giant octopi, they all happen around the time when the green turtles are coming ashore to lay their eggs. And a green turtle could weigh five, 600 pounds. It's a nice, slow chunk of meat for a giant octopus. You know, they chew through the shell, the carapace, the plastron, whatever. You know, it's like great. So this sounds like even larger octopi. They would want a nice big meal. And Migrating manatee would make a perfect, you know, snack or something like that. So anyway, so my point of this, I'm sorry, I digress, was that um, Paul thought was wondering if perhaps this thing was migrating that way because he he said it, he felt like it was headed back towards shore, and if it was itself tracking the octopuses because maybe they were what it feeds on. See, hmm. kind of like a King Kong versus Godzilla scenario. It's very interesting. I'll come back to the manatee in a little bit. I uh, I, I do have a question about uh, them, but um, you know, it's you just present some interesting information to uh, ponder and. Oh, a few, few years ago, uh, uh, there, there was like a travel channel or history channel show on Josh Gate. It was like you know one of those types of uh, show, uh, monster. Uh, I think you mentioned Monster Quest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, yeah, they were uh, investigating the report of a megalodon in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, they never, they never found anything. Um, you know, they interviewed, uh, you know, the local fishermen, uh, along the Mexican, uh, coast to said they saw something, that they've never seen. Uh, it was huge. I don't, know. I don't know if you've seen uh, seen the episode I'm talking about. I, I, I 
I do forget the exact uh, show title. I'm sorry about that. But okay. uh, but but is there yeah, the possibility of a few surviving megalodons to go along with the you know uh, example you just gave it you know, something you know really big that you know, um, ate a manatee and you know the uh, animals swimming alongside of the uh, carnival cruise ship is you know the Gulf of Mexico. There was one of uh, the Sea of Cortez that I know on Monster Quest where they were investigating. I don't know if that was for the monster squid part or not. And I know they were investigating like um, sightings of uh, like a huge shark they called like the Black Devil or something like that or Black Demon. I, that, that, may, uh, that, that may have been uh, – you may have narrowed it down uh, for, mm. for me. It, that, that sounds about right. You know, I was just wondering – is that – a uh, megalodon surviving today is that a real possibility? Well, so first, um, it's my considered opinion that there are some large macro predatory sharks out there, and we have a lot of evidence that backs that up. Um, when I say evidence, we don't have like skeletal remains, a carcass, or teeth yet, but we have, and uh, and I'm not talking anecdotal reports, but we have bite marks which are extremely compelling. Um, I'll start off with the smaller end of things, and then I'll work up from there. Uh, there are, uh, I don't have the guy's name in front of me, but uh, he did research for some marine biologists, and he went out and he got uh, photographic evidence and measured uh, the bite marks of great white sharks, for example, on whale carcasses. And they were able to take these legitimately obtained bite marks and compare them to the bite radiuses on physical specimens of, you know, obviously caught and killed great white sharks to compare them and how big they were, et cetera. And based on that factor, uh, he was able to say, and you know, marine biologists will, will back this largely, that the great white shark definitely exceeds eight meters in length, which is 25 feet, um, you know, somewhere in 25 to 26 feet, based on what this particular researcher did. Okay. Um, a friend of mine, and he and I are talking about actually going out and trying to fish for this thing at some point. We're putting it in, you know, the information in, in like a documentary, et cetera. But uh, he's had like whale carcasses that he studied. And we have actual video footage of this. So it's not just photos even. It's him approaching a stinking whale carcass, you know, that came ashore and pulling out a measuring table on video and taking measurements, et cetera, while being filmed. And there are multiple bites, you know, huge sections of the carcass are missing. And mm -hmm. he got bite measurements that I crunched the numbers. And just for example, most great white sharks, the tooth enamel, you know, the actual enamel portion of the tooth, the crown, okay, you know, the triangular part that's not embedded in the jaw, um, you know, they get to be two inches, maybe a little bit more in length, okay, the long way. He was finding the actual tooth measurements, the diameter was over two inches for each puncture, with teeth had dug in, and he measured the bite marks, and they were enormous. Uh, the sharks, the, the, and it was presumably a great white, um, was in the 28 to 29-foot range, and that's conservative based on known you know, uh, measurements, et cetera. So that 
basically proves that a great white or something similar um, can be pushing 30 feet in length. So that, that, you know, we have that, okay? Then we have, there's a, a famous photo that the guys who've been researching the uh, Super Predator, um, I'm sure you've seen those shows, the documentaries, you know, Hunt for the Super Predator, Super Predator, whatever, this type of stuff. And the most recent one they did, um, they were theorizing that uh, an enormous shark is the re responsible for killing and eating shark alpha. Do you remember that story where a three-meter great white was swallowed by something and it had a tag on it? Yes, some, something like that. I vaguely remember that. Okay. So that was like a decade ago or something off Australia in the Bremer Canyon. And so they did this documentary you know, theorizing that a, a much larger shark was responsible for this, et cetera. Okay. Um, I disagree with their findings completely based on the temperatures of the tag, et cetera, and all the other factors that went with it without getting into a whole big thing. But, you know, the animal's digestive system took a super long time, eight days. After it consumed the shark, it stayed at or near the surface, you know, for the next eight days until it excreted the shark, you know, or what was left, okay, and after it swallowed it. All this stuff, every, and the body temperature all seems to indicate a marine reptile. And the marine reptile that has that exact temperature range is something like a leatherback sea turtle. And there are reports that have been um, one I investigated and pretty much proved what the guy said based on his old footage, that there is a species of Piscivorous turtle out there. Piscivorous means fish eating. So it's not like one of these sea turtles that eats jellyfish or uh, algae all the time. But uh, mm -hmm. that is like at least 38 feet long, possibly bigger. It's a carnivorous turtle. It has a leatherback type body, but possibly no shell or a slim shell. And it's a fast swimming predator. Now, a 38-foot turtle is big enough to eat a 9-foot shark with no problem. Of course, the guys from that show didn't seem very appreciative. I got this nasty email or whatever a while back. But anyway, that's neither here nor there, okay? <laughs> Maybe it was a fan of theirs, you know. But um, so my point is, is that uh, on the show, they had photos of a pygmy blue male that had been attacked somewhere. I don't remember where. It wasn't near the Bremer Canyon. But it has on its peduncle the area near the tail. It has a bite scar there. That's a good four feet across on the top of it there where a shark, and if you see the detailed photo, you could see scarred individual teeth even. So a shark with a bite radius of at least four feet across had attacked this near 70-foot whale and tried to cripple it by destroying its means of propulsion. You know, tried to bite through its tail region, crush the spine. The whale would have been unable to swim and either bled out or been so crippled it couldn't swim and defend itself and it would have been easy to kill. So that's, but the, the bite didn't do enough damage. The whale survived, et cetera. Um, it's interesting because people said, oh, well, the bite, you know, stretches over time and all this other stuff like that. And we're not talking scars on the skin. We're talking a hunk of flesh that's been excised that still has two grooves. I don't believe that that bite, you know, that, that bite mark enlarged on the whale's body. If anything, it would fill in, not stretch, if you know what I'm saying. But we have more proof because a marine biologist I know in 2017, which is much more recently, was swimming with a 40-foot whale shark. And he has photos of it, which, you know, I have also. And the whale shark was sporting a bite mark, a similar bite on its left caudal keel and toward the back. The caudal keel is like this elongated ridge 
that runs along the sides of the tail. And there's a four-foot chunk of it that's been bitten through. Now, whale sharks are very slow animals. They don't, you know, they, they, it's a sad thing, but they just, their sheer size and having a skeleton made of cartilage makes them slow. They can't swim faster because their muscles, their body just can't move that much mass back and forth. The cartilage will not hold up under that much pressure. Does that make sense? Like it's rubber. Yeah. You know, like a bones mm-hmm. made of tire rubber are not as strong as bones made of bone. Okay. Uh, like, you know, you could take a, a whale vertebrae, I mean, a whale shark vertebrae, and you could slice it with a knife with no problem. If you had a whale vertebrae, you'd be like, oh, you need like a saw. You understand? So the whale shark only gets to swim at like three, four, maybe five miles an hour at most, even when attacked by orcas or anything else. But it has this thickened caudal keel, like rigid, like fibrous tissue that runs out. And in my opinion, I push out a theory there that I believe this is like a crumple zone in a car for the whale. When a big shark goes, tries to kill one of these things, he tries the same thing he did with that pygmy blue whale. They want to destroy its means of propulsion and stop it from being able to swim. So he took a shot at the, at the whale shark and took a big crunch out of there, but he didn't get to the muscle tissue. You know, all that stuff is just fibrous, like almost like scar tissue, that caudal keel. So the whale shark swam away. Its attacker got a mouthful of what tasted like yuck, you know, whatever, and so forth. I personally don't think a 40-foot shark, even a predatory one, is going to be able to swim much faster than that for the same reason. So anyway, the point is, is though, this shark has a four-foot bite taken out of it. Now, once again, detractors say, oh, the bite stretches over time. But that's not true. I researched it. And I've got photos of whale sharks that have been smaller ones, like 16-footers and stuff, that were attacked by like a great white or tiger shark. And you see the bite. You can see it's very distinctive. And then you see the bite like a month or two later, three months later, and it's almost completely gone. It's all filled in. You can barely tell the shape anymore. And these animals are hyper-regenerative when it comes to these type of attacks. But this bite on the 40-foot female, when I get the close-up shot of it, you can see individual tooth marks of the bite, triangles, sharp, they gouge right in there. One, two, three, you can, I mean, you can draw them, okay? This bite is not months old. It's like a week old, two weeks old at most. You know, this is not and something that happened years ago and it didn't grow with the whale shark, et cetera. So this is compelling evidence that there's a shark out there with a bite radius of at least four feet. And that puts us into an animal about the size of the whale shark, about 40 feet long. So when you ask me if it's a megalodon or not, the teeth marks are very pointy. And a megalodon's maxillary teeth, the teeth in the upper jaw, the center ones, et cetera, they're more rounded. They're designed to kind of fit between bones, like whale ribs, and like sort of crack them apart to get at the juicy stuff inside. And this thing has teeth more like a great white shark. You know, those very, they stay triangular, bam, like daggers, okay? Um, so it's either what the uh, the guys from the Super Predator series theorize, like a, a, a mutant great white, some abnormally large one, or another contender would be a relative of the megalodon shark, which is Carcharocles chubutensis. And that animal existed at the same time as megalodon. They sort of like split off, et cetera, and it became extinct. I don't know. I'd have to look it up probably uh, theoretically a few million years ago or something. But um, – and it wasn't as big. It got to be around 40 feet in length. But its upper central maxillary teeth are more triangular. They stay sort of pointy. I know I have one, a huge one, almost five inches in my collection. So, you know, if I was going to say it was an extinct, quote, 
shark. My bet would be not as much Megalon, but its relative Chubutensis would be a candidate. Either that, a gigantic great white, or something we just haven't seen yet. I'm sorry. Max, with about. the oh, it, with with the example you just gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, you also uh, m- may find e- examples <clears throat> in the uh, uh, fossil records of the, uh, you know fight to the de- you know, like both animals kill each other and they you know just kind of die in the swamp and you know, a million mm-hmm. years later you know they get a uh, backhoe unearth them or something like that. Uh, you. you where do you get your uh, ideas for your Kronos Rising series? Well, <clears throat> I, I I happen to have one of these. Well, my original career was as an animator. I used to draw cartoons for a living, believe it or not. I, I graduated from college with a degree in film and animation, and I worked in that industry for a bit, et cetera. Um, so I, I tend to be artistic by nature. And that helps with your writing when you're creating compelling visuals because you can actually, instead of putting pen to paper in terms of like artwork, et cetera, you put words to paper and use the descriptive portion of your brain to create those visuals for the reader through the words. So that is where some of the creativity comes from. But I just, my brain just cranks out stuff nonstop. I mean, Mark, I woke up in the middle of the night last night with two great ideas for like two horror novellas. And I just like, you know, texted myself messages and stuff about both of them so I wouldn't forget because I do sometimes, you know, I'll never remember in the morning. And I go back mm-hmm. to sleep and I wake up in the morning. I'm like, oh, man, that's a great idea, you know, and then I can run with it. It's like I actually will in my sleep will like if I'm in the middle of a book writing intense stuff, I'll have seen ideas and, and dialogue that come to me in my sleep. And I'll wake up and I'll jot down notes or whatever or text myself and I'll go back to sleep. Doesn't make for a lot of sleep sometimes, you know. But I don't. I never have a problem in terms of creativity. My brain is always churning out ideas. I have a backlog of at least twenty or twenty-five novels, you know, these great ideas to write, et cetera. It's just I have to whittle through that list, you know. Writing books takes time, so I, I don't. I never. I don't get writer's block. Let's put it that way. I get writer's okay. insomnia. That's that's worse. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on the uh, writer's insomnia, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, your novels are also set in you know the Gulf of Mexico uh, area, uh, where everything ended for the dinosaurs. Um, yeah, do, do, you know, do you think uh, like the Gulf of Mexico is you know kind of like the cryptid capital? You mean like the cradle of where these things are all coming from? So to speak? yeah, um, I, yeah well, is there like a little bit higher concentration of marine cryptids there than I, 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 I don't know. I I mean I chose Florida as my setting because I'm down there a lot. You know I do a lot of fishing and stuff. You know, a lot of vacationing, et cetera. So I know the area, the climate. You know, it's really easy to put into the book, and it's conducive for when you're writing about prehistoric marine reptiles being alive in the present. Um, in terms of the setting you're talking about, like 
when I created this, the whole thing for Cronus Rising, I wanted something very believable to give the public so that they would actually like look at the ocean after they read my book and be like, I don't want to go out there. You know, like, you know, this could be real and, you know, people disappear here. Uh, I don't want to go out there, this type of stuff. So I was like thinking, well, so much stuff's been done. You know, I mean, you've had movies where there were 500 foot tall praying mantises frozen in an iceberg that melted, you know, and giant dinosaurs that were frozen and came back to life or creatures that the, you know, like, like. The Megalon shark, the, there was a book called Megalodon by Dan Brown back in like 1980 or something like that. And he had these huge sharks living in the bottom of the ocean, you know, isolated, et cetera. You know, there's been a lot of stuff. You have like the plateau thing from like, you know, the, the, the Lost World. And obviously now we have Jurassic Park with things being cloned mm-hmm. from, you know, mosquitoes that have like dinosaur blood in them. You know, you want something that seems real and natural. I, I think to me... I was probably inspired by a part by the Wallumi Pines, you know, these Jurassic era trees that still exist in parts of the world. I don't know if it's Australia or somewhere. It's been so long, you know, decades, but um, where they were living in a hidden valley that was protected in terms of climate by certain factors. I don't know if it was geothermal or what, but, you know, they have these species of trees that have been around since the Jurassic period. So what I did was I decided, okay, well, how am I going to put all this together? You know, and when you say the Gulf of Mexico, what I wanted to do is I wanted to feed off of the, you know, the Chicxulub crater at the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and, the, you know, the asteroid impact that, you know, wiped out all the non-avian Saurians, unfortunately, that we all know and love. So, you know, I'm dealing with marine animals, though, you know, so that makes it a little trickier. So when you, you know, when you have this asteroid that struck, you know, there's different I mean, the size estimates of this asteroid have changed over the years. It was six miles, it was seven. Now they say maybe nine miles in diameter. The crater has changed in sizes. I've heard it range from, you know, 130 to 190 miles across the original crater. I mean, all different stuff. But the bottom line is it was hell on Earth when it hit. It was a bad day to be on the planet. And one of the side effects as it plowed into the planet and created this giant crater, et cetera, where it it caused mega tsunamis that were some estimates a thousand meters tall you know well over three thousand feet that's a big wave okay so to to help this thing out i created this fictional island this caldera which in the present day is called diablo caldera for excuse me obvious reasons and i had that where these you know, these pliosaurs these giant marine reptiles are in my book they were in the middle of a mating chase you know to make it more realistic, where the you know this female that was in estrus was being courted by a bunch of males that had to prove themselves to worthy to mate, and they would be chasing her around and stuff until there was only one left. And I had when the asteroid struck, which interrupted obviously this, you know, it was whatever many many miles away, a thousand miles away or whatever it was, you know, these animals eventually get swept up in this enormous tsunami, which swamps this caldera. You know, this the caldera is a for those mm-hmm. who aren't familiar with it, is like a, a volcano that many eons earlier has blown up and the entire top three quarters of it is gone. So instead of like a cone like that, it's just like a bowl-shaped depression, see? So when I had this tsunami, this mega tsunami swamp the caldera keep going, it basically filled it with salt water and turned it into a giant saltwater aquarium. 
and the death toll would have been substantial, but there were surviving animals inside the caldera. Some of my pliosaurs, other marine reptiles, prehistoric fish, prehistoric squid, you know, an entire ecosystem. You've got to give these things something to eat, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's how I basically set it up. And, of course, you know, you have geothermal heating from a dormant volcano, so ice ages, et cetera, were workable. You know, fast forward to the present, you know, ongoing tremors, it'll split in the side, some stuff gets out, you know, yada, 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 that's where we're at. Um, I know I digress quite a bit there, but when you asked about the whole cradle thing and, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. So um, I don't know that I feel that the Gulf of Mexico is necessarily a hot spot. I, well, I, I think it is a hot spot in terms of like you've got a lot of stuff there. You know, it's big, it's deep, and I, I you know, but 65 million years is a long time for things to stay in one spot. But, uh, I mean, there's a few spots like Australia, New Zealand, et cetera, where you've got repeated mm-hmm. things, including the uh, the thing we were talking about with the, the the monster squid from the Monster Quest thing. The um, Oh, my God, I mentioned it before. Now I can't think of it. My poor brain. Ah, you doctors and your medicines. But anyway, um, so, you know, there's the Sea of Cortez. I'm sorry. So, yeah, I, I, I would say it's a hot spot, but there's many throughout the planet, you know, when it comes to this type of thing. So. Okay. Well, it's, uh, th- I would not want to be swimming down there, let's put it this way, and encounter an octopus that's big enough to eat manatees as an hors d'oeuvre. Yeah. You know, that would be a horrible, horrible death. I mean, horrible. Uh, I'm sure it would be. Yeah, you'd it, be alive it, through a good chunk of it, you know? And, it, and it, you know, your uh, discussion you just gave us, uh, you, know, you did mention in Jurassic Park, or talking about you know, extracting uh, you know, DNA from mosquitoes. Uh, is the like that Jurassic Park technology something that would work today? Is it is is it your kit kit? Well, if you had blood from a mosquito, dinosaur blood, okay, and it wasn't you know, dried out and deteriorated. I mean, I think they say DNA can only last so long, and I think 65, 66 million years is quite a stretch. And some of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park come from the Jurassic, which is even more, you know. But um, <clears throat> I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what the leading tech is. I would imagine if they add actual blood, you know, that was viable with DNA in there, that they could get complete DNA strands, and knowing that we're able to reverse engineer chicken embryos and give them dinosaur characteristics already, you know, they've done this, right? They've taken, you know, hatched chicken eggs that have had teeth and tails and all this stuff. They're mm-hmm. playing with the, the markers there. So I would imagine if they had the actual DNA, you know, they could take an ostrich egg and use that as a surrogate and they could, boom, you know, put it in there. Could happen. You know, would it be smart? I don't know. I'd love to see a living, you know, Rex. I don't know that I'd want to be chased by one, <laughs> especially not with Jeff, Jeff Goldblum in the back, you know, going on and on. He's so annoying. Oh, my God. Not him, but his character, you know. God. Yeah, I, 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 
Yeah, you know, I'd really like to you know, ride around through a Jurassic Park in the you know Jeep. I like to do that too. I think I'm sure most of the listeners would. Faster, it, 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 must it, go it, faster. Yeah. Like get off the it, get off the gear shift. Yeah, and on on your website, you, know, you have some blogs on there. Um, and, you know, you're covering the Spinosaurus and yeah, you know, like what you had to say about. I, I, I maybe should you know, describe it. And you know the little fin things, and um, yeah, uh, their their purpose, and and you know, that, that seems like it's a kind of a new dinosaur, at least for me. Um, then I have a question, a follow up question. But you had some uh, neat drawings on, uh, you know, uh, computer graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, um. Yeah, you know, just if you want to uh, talk about it, go ahead. I, 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 oh, you, are you asking me? That you one. want me to like uh, expound upon it? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I wasn't just sure. get, you know, a little description of it, and it, then I've uh, you know question afterwards. Okay. Well, Spinosaurus has been around for a long time. I mean, the original fossils, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, Stromer found them were destroyed during World War II during bombings, if I'm not mistaken, which is a crying shame. A lot of fossils were lost that way. You know, war is a terrible thing. But um, so Spinosaurus has gone through numerous metamorphoses over the decades. You know, it was a quadruped. It was bipedal. It was this. It was that. You know, you saw it in Jurassic Park three, where it was this. You know, they up wanted to upscale the T Rex with something bigger and better, et cetera. Um, but you know, we know now and found that after that, that the animal was not bipedal per se. It had actually its hind legs were short. It was a, more like a quadruped, almost like a crocodile with this fin on its back, and. Uh, we found out recently things like, well, for example, its snout was very long and narrow. It was a piscivore. It fed on fish predominantly. Um, and most recently, which put the rest, a lot of theories that people put out, they go, oh, it couldn't swim. It, was, it would have flip-flopped on the surface and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I, I hear these things and I'm like, what? And you know this because what? Oh, because your computer program said that? Yeah, computer programs, they're not dinosaurs. But most recently, they got a complete tail, or relatively complete tail, and they know now that the animal had this long, elongated tail that was tall and narrow, like a crocodile's tail or a newt's. You know, it was designed with this sort of like almost like a membrane, and it was designed to whip back and forth, you know, in an S pattern through the water and propel it. So the animal was predominantly aquatic sort of like a crocodile or a gharial, you know, but with a fin, and except its legs were a bit longer, and it could probably travel better on dry land than could possibly, I believe, it could rear up, stand up on its hind legs a bit also. So, but Ibrahim uh, and the rest of his team who put out the paper and the previous papers that have solved all these mysteries are gods, in my opinion. I mean, they really, the work, the details, the, it's just incredible what they've done. You know, they, they've breathed life, new life back into this thing. And even though people that are the fans of the, the mythical, you know, Spino from JP3, you know, were up in arms, et cetera, 
it's a beautiful animal. You know, it is streamlined and sleek, and it is just the, like the greatest fisherman in the history of the world. Certainly the biggest, you know, 50 feet long. But, um, you know, I, I've followed all this stuff and whatnot. And in fact, I just, somebody just had me on a show um, two days ago for an hour talking about Spinosaurus and all this. And uh, he didn't know that I had all this stuff up my sleeve about my own research I'd done. So I snuck it in there, you know, and everything. <laughs> Kind of like, I don't think I hogged the show, but it was nice to have new material to talk about that wasn't out there yet, you know. And one of the things that, you know, for me about Spinosaurus was like, I'm like, well, this animal was around for a long time. And it you know, presumably died off when its environments changed and the seas came in and it lost all its, its riverine environments, etc. Um, but how was it surviving when you consider the fact that it had other animals that it had to contend with you know it first off it shared the same bodies of water with the super croc sarcosuchus mm-hmm. imperator which you know has changed in size over the you know years but current estimates put the animal at i think around 33 feet or something like that you know, four five tons i forget but it was a big croc okay and they would have possibly competed for the same food sources and then you had on dry land, you had Kercherodontosaurus, Saharicus, and possibly a, another species. And this is what they call the African T-Rex. And this was an enormous bipedal carnivore, you know, a terrestrial killer, the size of the biggest T-Rex is known. It had a skull that was like 5.2 feet long, serrated teeth, massive jaws, tremendously muscular, muscular, I mean, eight, nine tons, whatever it was, it was a killing machine. And this thing is designed to drag down ceratopsians and sauropods. Ceratopsians are horned dinosaurs, and sauropods are the big ones with the long necks and all that, in case anybody doesn't know. So the point is, is Spinosaurus, with that long, comparatively slender snout, is not designed to slug it out with this thing, Kercherodontosaurus. That's like a gharial. Do you know what a gharial is? The, uh, the, yeah, the, the uh, crocodilians? Uh, yeah, that real long, uh, slender uh, nose. Alligator with, yeah, the uh, really long, no, skinny nose. Right, with all the teeth designed to catch fish. So, you know, a mm-hmm. gharial does not fight with a Nile crocodile or a saltwater crocodile or an alligator. It's going to get killed, you know? It's like somebody with a fencing foil fencing with somebody with a broadsword. You're not going to do very well. You know, you might stick them once or twice, but, you know, you're not going to, boom, and it's over. So... You know, I'm like, well, this, you know, Spino cannot stay in the water all the time. It's presumably warm-blooded like most dinosaurs were, et cetera. You know, it's got to come out. You know, it's got to lay its eggs. It might nest. You know, whatever it is, you know, what happens when one of these Kercherodontosauruses comes down to the lake, to the river? And it's going to happen. It's got to drink, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, these confrontations might have been regular. And so I wanted to theorize, like, put out there, like, well, how could this, you know, quadrupedal fish eater survive faced with effectively a Tyrannosaurus rex coming after it, you know? And then I, we, we went through all different variants on this. I mean, obviously, the first option is, you know, retreat. You know, you're at the water's edge. You got eight or nine tons of hungry, you know, mouth coming at you like Pac-Man with fangs. You know, you dive in the water and you swim away, Okay. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that that works, you know, you know, with all the crocs and everything else in there and the advantage being for the marine animal now, the, the lake animal, whatever, you know, 
it's not going to be pursued most likely by this thing. See, and who knows what else is in there? I mean, there could be things that we don't even know yet, you know. But uh, and then the you know, other option would be you know bluffing. You know, we we it's likely, even though its hind legs are relatively short, that Spinosaurus could rear up on its hind legs. And you see confrontations oh. like spectacle bears being attacked by tigers. They stand up on right. their hind legs to try and look bigger and more intimidating. You know, um, I've got video footage on my site of uh, a giant anteater being attacked by a jaguar. You know, this type of thing, et cetera. So they, they stand up like that. And Spino could certainly, in my opinion, have done that. It would have used that big, powerful, flexible tail for a tripod to help balance it, et cetera. You know, and it would have, I mean, it would have been big, standing up this two stories high, hissing, you know, whatever, puffing out the big sail, maybe turned sideways, et cetera. It might have looked so menacing that Carcharodontosaurus was like, whoa, whoa, easy, dude. You know, I'm good, you know, just passing through, just need a drink, you know, this type of thing. But if not, you know, the animal's got to defend itself. And you can bet that that happened. And when you look at the hands of Spinosaurus, you see, in my opinion, how that worked. Because it's got these talons on its forelimbs. And these hands couldn't turn palm down, okay, to the, the ground. We know the theropods, based on anatomy and the fossil record, they couldn't do that. They couldn't pronate, is what it's called. But they would be standing, the palms would be like vertical, up and down, like facing each other, etc. So there are these large talons on these hands. And the top one, the first digit, thumb, whatever you want to call it, is extremely large. It's twice the size of the others, long, curved, and sharp. Now you see in the fossil record a lot of dinosaurs that have these adaptations. You've got Iguanodon, which is an herbivore that had these thumb spikes. You've got Therizinosaurus that had like the long Freddy Krueger claws on its you know, fingers and stuff. You know, different ones. Okay? So Spinosaurus and its relative, Suchomimus, which is a Spinosaurid relative, but with longer hind legs and a shorter sail, but also a Piscivore with that long, thin face. They both have these matching claws and this enlarged first talon, okay? So in my opinion, I think that this was used for self-defense. And where Spinosaurus would be in a position where it's being attacked, it would be rearing back and obviously trying to protect its vulnerable head and neck, et cetera, and it would slash with these talons. And it's got two of them, okay? So Carcharodontosaurus is coming in, and he wants to kill this thing right away. He wants to get it by the nape of the neck, you know, crush that spinal column, get it by the head, kill the brain cavity, whatever it's going to be. That's what he wants to do because he knows this thing can bite back and, you know, getting bitten is never a good thing. Like if every time you make a kill, somebody tears open your face, it's just a matter of time before you're blind, among other things. Are you with me? Right. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so now you're Carcharodontosaurus. When you're going for that bite, you know, you're using your face, see? And the Spinosaurus's arms, even though they're not gigantic, they're out there. And they're going to impact on that face before it gets to the body of the Spinosaurus. So it's slashing, wham, wham, like a giant anteater defending itself against a jaguar. Slash, slash. And a couple of hits like that is enough to tell somebody, okay, you know what? I'm good. I, I thought you were somebody else. I really apologize. You know, my brother's cousin, sister said you said something about my cat, and I, but that's actually somebody else. All right, maybe that's a little digressing. But anyway... So the point is, though, you know, I think that's how the dinosaur protected itself. It would slash away the faces, you know, the heads of whatever was attacking it, et cetera, and, you know, until it could escape or until it drove off its attacker. 
Hello. Can I get? No, I'm just. I just listening to your spiel. Uh, ca- captivating I- I- information. It, it, you know, one of the things I learned by uh, you know reading the um, you know, blog on the Spinosaurus is is you're talking about you know, like the little sail thing on its back. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have been like um, some kind of nutrient storage um, area. You know, uh, you know, holds a little uh, uh, water when you know, he's kind of making his uh, – Way across the land from one swamp to the other, and um, you know, it's like it actually kind of sounds like a camel, you mm-hmm. know, today's camel. And it, you know, it's, and you know, I was trying to think of some kind of like evolutionary type question uh, to work in. I, it, it, if your theory is correct, well, okay, that concept of ha- having a built-in water reservoir supply, yeah, yeah, a reservoir, uh, it started millions of years ago, and it's still going on today. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get the coelacanths that. Haven't changed like they've like been outside of evolution. So you get like some species have been impacted by evolution, and others uh, um, have been unaffected. (laughs) I I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. It's you know like everyone's affected by gravity, but not all this. Species are affected by evolution. Well, there are. I mean, I think that if nature has you know, a body type that works, you know, evolution, um, you know, it sticks with it. I mean, sharks have been relatively unchanged in terms of their basic body plan for God knows how many millions of years. The same thing with crocodilians. You know, they outlasted the dinosaurs also. So. You've, you know, when you have a, a perfected body plan, uh, you know, barring some cosmic interference, you know, meaning asteroid or, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, that, that plan tends to continue. Um, coelacanths, I mean, the, the enormous coelacanths that lived at the time of Spinosaurus, like Mawsonia, that were the size of a great white shark. I mean, they were big. You know, picture like a 16, 17-foot grouper with like lobe fins, you know, where, but they're gone. As far as we know, we only have the normal size, like man-sized coelacanths nowadays. Um, but in terms of the sail, uh, you know, I, I had an illustration of a camel on there for a reason because you do start to see those extended neural spines that, in my opinion, form the the the, the sail, which is more like a hump, in my opinion. But I'm not the one who came right. up with that. There are paleontologists who are credited in the uh, you know, in the blog post for putting out these theories in terms of you know assorted aspects of it. Um, but I, I believe that the spines are very, I mean, the actual neural spines are, they're thick, these bones, they're very sturdy, you know, like a camel's, but bigger. 
and uh, Suchomimus, the Spinosaurus's relative, has them, but they're about half the, the size. Okay, so if you have this thing as a storage thing of fat, you know, which is what a camel does. You know, people think that a camel's hump is made out of water, and it's not. It's made out of fat. But fat is 80% or whatever it is, water, see? So in times of feast or famine, in times of famine or drought, you know, the camel is able to dissolve its own hump. And as it does, that fat gives it water. So it's able to survive for prolonged periods of time in between drinks, okay? So Spinosaurus mm -hmm. had the same adaptation. Um, it would make sense because if you think about it, it's quite possible that, like in Africa today, you have your wet seasons and your dry seasons, see? So mm -hmm. when the dry season comes, a lot of animals die. Hippos, crocs, you know, crocs try and burrow into the mud, or they get into under an embankment where there's mud, and they bury themselves in mud, and they just sort of wait it out, you know, live off their fat reserves and just try and chill, okay? Spinosaurus is not a crocodile, so its metabolism is going to be different. See, it can't like function at the same level as a croc. Also, pretty hard to bury yourself in the embankment if you're 50 feet long, etc. But it's quite possible that that huge hump was what would carry it through during these dry spells, or that would enable it to travel to migrate to bodies of water that were unaffected by a dry season, and it would use that hump. You know that spine of you know storages of right. fat, et cetera, to, to get there. You know, like gas in your car, and that kind of makes sense if you look at Suchomimus, which has a similar adaptation but smaller one, because Suchomimus is bipedal; it travels on two legs, and it would be faster, so it would be able to get travel you know longer distances in the same period of time because it's moving at a quicker gait. You know, it's not plodding along on all fours, boom, 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 boom. It could be jogging, loping, whatever you want to call it, et cetera. So it, logically it makes sense that you had the, these adaptations at the, the, the spines, the, you know, the sail, et cetera, was for that pur main purpose. Um, you know, I had also put out the possibility when I was doing that other interview where uh, another possible benefit, you know, sometimes things work out more than once, would be that with it being a warm-blooded animal, assumedly, like, you know, presumably, I'm sorry, like most dinosaurs are known to have been, um, when it's in the water for prolonged periods of time, you know, it's going to start to lose body heat. And, you know, crocodiles, they regulate their temperatures by coming out of the water and basking, et cetera. But if Spinosaurus was going to be in there for prolonged periods of time, it might have been beneficial for the dinosaur to have that sail projecting up above the surface. And if that sail was dark in color, the pigmentation, or was able to change hues as need be, yeah. which would be logical, like chameleons, etc. You know, it could turn mm -hmm. dark brown or gray, even black in the sun. It would be, it would heat up, and the blood rushing through that sail would circulate through the animals, the submerged portions of the animal's body, and help it stay comfortably submerged for prolonged periods of time. And that would work out very nicely for the dinosaur. So it would have a dual benefit, you know, from the same storage of fat, et cetera, in my humble opinion. And I'm sure, you know, I've been talking about you know, these huge animal, you know, 50 feet long, yeah, it's, okay, it's going to be uh, tough to bury himself in a 
swamp during the uh, uh, dry season and as sale. Um, you know, and you got to don't forget to, also. I'm sorry to interrupt, but and when, if the thing does have to migrate to another body of water, it's now out of the water. It's more vulnerable to attack from a big predator like a charadontosaurus as well. So just right. throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. So and um, it it gave us a lot of things to think about. And you know, if the swamp dries up too much, he's going to have to get out. And get get out of the, the, the mud and actually find uh, the ocean or you know next closest body of water. But he uh, also covered. Well, there's the inland sea in Russia that you mentioned, mm-hmm. and in um, Adrian Mayor's. Uh, fossil legends of the first Americans. You know, she talks about you know, these mosasaurs being found in uh, like Nebraska, Oklahoma, uh, and kind of like that uh, uh, heartland plains uh, uh, region of the uh, states. Um, ha- have you been to some of these? Areas that you know were once the in- inland oceans. What what are some of the other um, information of you know, about these dinosaurs that we've learned you know, uh, just recently? Um, I, I, it's, it's a lot of questions, um, so I'm not sure which one to address first, but. The, the piece you're talking about um, with Russia, et cetera, um, is not a, a mosasaur, per se. Um, they're both marine reptiles, but uh, it's a species, uh, a genus of pliosaur, um, okay. which is they came before the mosasaurs. The mosasaurs sort of emerged to fill the ecological niche as they were on their way out. So mosasaurs are basically um, like marine monitor lizards. They were uh, they got gigantic, mm-hmm. obviously we know. I mean, if the Carnival Cruise Monster is wanted, they're pretty big now. But uh, so pliosaurs were like a type of plesiosaur that had a large crocodile-like head, a short neck, you know, a, a muscular body, four large paddles or flippers to propel them through the water, and a short tail. So sort of like a sea turtle with four big flippers without the shell and a crocodile head on the end, something like that. Okay, or a, mm-hmm. a short-tailed crocodile with four flippers, you know, propelling it. Mosasaurs used their tail, their caudal flukes. They had like a shark tail on the end of their long tail that propelled them through the water. So it was their mode of locomotion was different too. But uh, so the pliosaurs are, are different. The, the, the fossil I had in my collection, which was an intriguing, uh, you know, story behind it. And I got it from this dealer, and he had told me where it was found, and that it was a type of pliosaur, carpal bone, as he called it, et cetera. And it was very intriguing because, I mean, the, the thing is about the size of your palm, you know, in terms of diameter and similar thickness, et cetera, and it's like this big knuckle bone. But if you think about it, it looks like a small bone. So I started investigating it, trying to figure it out. I spoke to a few paleontologists, including Valentin Fisher, who was a big help in terms of helping me narrow things down, et cetera, and uh, Paul De La Salle from uh, the U.K., great guy. 
And so I eventually realized that based on the time period that it was from, the only big pliosaur that is known to exist, so the presumption is that that's what it was, because there's very little complete fossil material on this thing, is a type of Chronosaurus species, uh, either Queenslandicus or the other one. And uh, there's a Colombian version also, Boyacensis, sorry. Um, so the question was, but these, aren't, these animals aren't known from that region. You know, they're known from New Zealand, Australia, that type of stuff. And I think they found, oh, and the ones in Colombia, but nowhere near, you know, Russia or anything like that. But there was like, you know, an inland sea there, et cetera. And so I narrowed it down and realized that it was one of these tiny paddle bones they have in their flippers. You know, they had all these like phalanges and hyperphalanges. So there's long, giant flippers that could be 10 feet long where had dozens and dozens of these little bones extending out to form the, these flexible flippers they swam with. And this is one of those bones. So I was able to do some number crunching with it based on uh, diagrams and all this other stuff and figure out that it apparently it was a type of Chronosaurus and not, a, a, not an older one, but still big. And it was the size of, let's say, the purported maximum size for the species, somewhere around like a 36-foot animal, maybe 13-plus tons, something like that. Um, but, you know, apparently that they did live in that area and ruled those Cretaceous oceans at that time period. So it, it's nice that you get a discovery like that because you can say that, you know, I just proved that Chronosaurus's range was greater than previously known. It actually also lived in Russia as well as these other parts of the planet. So the animal was probably much more cosmopolitan is the term. You know, it was all over the place. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, that's it. Interesting. So basically, a lot of the aquatic dinosaurs found you know, in Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, and you know, like the Russia example. Yeah, that that's just uh, pretty calm. You would probably find many examples of those types of uh, dinosaurs all around the world. Oh yeah, most of fossils okay. are. I mean, in North America, there's a lot of them in different areas. Um, you know, treasure troves of them. I, uh, I mean, I have some mosasaur fossils in my collection, some, you know, impressive teeth and things of that nature. Um, I also have a, uh, a section of mandible jawbone from a uh, species of mosasaur. Uh, my God, my brain shut down for a second. It is, oh, my God, are you kidding me? So I told you, they put me on all this medicine, and I'm a little dopey. But um, it'll come to me in a second. So, oh, Prognathodon is the, uh, the genus. So this is a large macropredatory mosasaur that lived in the Cretaceous period. And it's interesting because, you know, Mosasaurus hafmani is calculated to be the biggest mosasaur. You know, they say different size estimates. It was 45 feet long, it was 50 feet long, different things like that. You know, Prognathodon was maybe a little smaller, et cetera. But it's interesting because the jawbone I have belonged to a pretty large prognathodon that was probably about 40 feet long, you know, fleshed out, everything. And this jawbone has been broken off the face of its original owner. Wow. It's like a, a three-foot section of it. And it has tooth punctures on it. Boom, 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 boom. 
And it, these are the tooth punctures from a much larger mosasaur. And, you know, this is not imagination or anything like that. I mean, these are legitimate tooth punctures in a pattern, et cetera, that show that what happened. So this most, and they're not healed, which means that the attacker killed and possibly fed upon this 40-foot mosasaur. But it was a lot bigger. And conservatively, conservatively, I'm saying that it was 70 feet long. Now, that's a big mosasaur. I mean, compared to the Cornwall yeah. Cruise monster, it doesn't sound big, you know. But this is basically fossil proof that suggests that, you know, Prognathodon may have, in effect, been the biggest of all mosasaurs and aggressively preyed on other mosasaurs, including other specimens of its kind. I mean, maybe it's a territorial dispute, you know, mating thing, who knows what. But, you know, it, it, the, the, you've got to see the distance between the punctures, too. And the, the, the head... Just the skull of the attacking mosasaur had to be nine feet long. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and where are you know, you're just talking about your uh, fossil collection? Uh, where are you finding, or how, how are you building your? Uh, fossil collection. Are you finding some on your own? Oh, I don't have time to do that anymore. I just, I just know so many, you know, top quality dealers that I work with and stuff, and you know, okay. haggle with, et cetera, and all that. And you want to get the good stuff, you know. You don't want to. I mean, I don't have time. I have invitations to fly over to the UK and you know, hunt the Jurassic Coast with some of the great guys over there, and I would love to do that, honestly, like Paul de La Salle and stuff. I mean, the Etches Collection Museum over there. Uh, is founded by Dr. Steve Etches, a paleontologist, who spent you know his whole life he collected on his own as a fossil collector thousands and thousands of specimens that they formed an actual museum based on his collection called the Etches Collection of Jurassic Marine Life. And you know, I get out there to Dorset. I mean that'll be one of my first stops and all that. But uh, you know there there's some great people out there that are really contribute to paleontology with their discoveries. And you don't have to you know be somebody who's cooped up in a museum all day or sitting on your fossil collections or the museum's fossils like smog on his treasure. Oh, nobody else can have anything. Not one coin. You know, <laughs> not one trilobite. You know, it shouldn't be like that. You know, the, the general populace is really good at you know, in my opinion, at, you know, getting stuff, but also in sharing it. You know, if I have like a unique fossil in my collection, like that Kronosaurus, you know, carpal bone, for example, you know, I explore it. I put it out there. You know, I'm not hiding it under a bushel or anything like that. You know, I want to share the knowledge. That's why, like, when I developed, like, a, the theory of how plesiosaurs swam, you know, like the Loch Ness Monster types, you know, the long necks and the four mm-hmm. flippers, et cetera, you know, I mean, I put it out there, and then we actually did a formal paper on it last year that was put out you know, with full animation to show anatomically how these creatures swam, used their flippers together, all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to brag, but, you know, compared to a lot of stuff out there, my theory is it appears to be spot on, the only one that makes actual sense, anatomically, physiologically, the whole enchilada. So, yay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably most people – are interested in you know, the T-Rexes and the uh, terrestrial dinosaurs. What drew you to uh, you know, the, the marine uh, 
uh, type dinosaurs and you know, the interest you in mean the from, from my books, you mean? Oh, no, just personally. What, uh, uh, what you know, just, well, I have you know, it's a little different looking. I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I, I, you know, I just say, you know, it's, it, pr- probably most people would uh, have more of an interest in the T Rexes running around in the jungle, and you know, you're going for the ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and that kind of stuff. You know, uh, uh, you know, what, you know ha, ha, what drew you to the ocean instead of the the land? I got you. Donna's well. But- I mean, the first thing is that my the fossils that I've collected are extremely varied. I mean, if you know, I have everything from, uh, gosh, a, a cave bear skull to a 500 million year old trilobite to you know a collection of shark teeth spanning the evolution that led up to you know Carcharothes megalodon. I've got the cranium from an Irish elk. I've got scoots from giant prehistoric crocodiles. I've got stone tools made by primitive man, some of which go back 800,000 years, pebble tools, et cetera, ammonites. I mean, I've got everything, you know, prehistoric elephant teeth, you know, you name it, I've got it. So the marine stuff, you know, tends to be a little more out there because of the fact that that's, you know, what I do for a living. I write novels about extinct marine predators. I'm slurring my words, but uh, being, you know, on the loose, uh, you know, kind of Jaws meets Jurassic Park type thing, et cetera. You know, like that's like what I do for a living. But, I mean, if you ask me what I'm drawn to in terms of writing, I think that that's a combination of of me growing up when I was a kid. My dad was a passionate rock hound. I don't know if you know what a rock hound is. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm, you know, I'm familiar a person, with amateur studies uh, geology, you know, and paleontology, et cetera, collects things, that type of stuff. So yeah. as a child, I was exposed to things all the time. You know, my dad would, you know, I, I remember as a kid being five or six years old, five years old, and he had like the, the bones of a mammoth sitting on top of our piano. You know, they're enormous. I mean, as a kid, you oh. think they're, you know, as big as like, you know, the, the house. But, uh, you know, he was always doing, you know, wheeling, dealing, trading, selling, all this other stuff. You know, he still doesn't know I, uh, when I was around 14 or 13, I stole one of his Megalodon teeth and I took it to the Academy of Sciences trading post and I traded it for something I gave to my mom as a Mother's Day present. <laughs> but I got a deal. <laughs> but anyway, so the point is, is that, uh, so, I mean, I had that growing up and I, you know, I had the prehistoric scenes model kits and, you know, watched all the movies and, you know, the Ray Harry mm-hmm. house and stuff, et cetera. But as I, you know, I also had a passion for fishing. You know, and it's kind of like fishing is like the, the Forrest Gump thing. You know, when you put your line in there, you never know what you're going to get. You know, and I've hooked some insane, mm-hmm. impossible, and strange things, you know, during my hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, uh, you know, days on the water. So, you know, you add the, the mystery of the deep with a love for prehistoric life, and it just kind of seems to go hand in hand. Okay, yeah. Well, the water is very terrifying, you know. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Human beings, I mean, we're uh, the dominant species on this planet, but that's basically because of technology. You know, I mean, if you take us and you put us without uh, firearms, et cetera, you know, on the plains of the Serengeti, we're not going to last very long, you know, or the woods of 
Canada and in the water it's even worse. I mean, we're slow on the ground. You put us in the water, I mean, how fast is the fastest human swimmer in the world? Three miles an hour? I mean, I don't know. It's not very fast, though. Yep. You know? Right. So, I mean, everything out there, you know, can run rings around you. So you're in this environment where you're, you know, you're like a manatee. But worse. I mean, the manatees are much faster, you know. The only, only advantage is you're not as blubbery and juicy, so maybe you're not as desirable. But, you know, you put yourself in this environment, you're in the water, you know, you really can't see far, if at all, down there. It's murky, it's dark, you could drown, you're super slow. Maybe you're on the surface, something passing by, you feel pressure waves, something big. Oh, my God, something touched my foot. You know, it's terrifying. And then when you put mm-hmm. into the fact you take somebody who can spin a good yarn, like yours truly, and you have something really big and menacing and dangerous creeping around under you, etc. And then you can even put yourself in the predator's perspective and what it sees. It's, you, know, you can really, it's a frightening situation. You, you don't want to be there. You know, it's better, but you can read about it. It's better when you can read about it. Safer. Well, yeah, there's, um, on your gallery mm-hmm. page. The Paleo Gallery? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, by the way, I've been so slacking on. I'm so, such a loser. Oh, my God. Uh, well, it, there's uh, one... Well, it's scrolled by at the top. Um, it, it, it was the um, it was kind of like a uh, greenish-looking shark, and it had uh, like a squid. Let me go um, on there and see what it is you're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, oh, I see what it is right there. Is it, is it like you, a, a nighttime shot, so to speak? Yes, and that was what you were just talking about, where you know you really can't see what's coming at you. You know, like that uh, animal does look like like it exemplifies what you're just discussing. You only see part of it. You know, it's a nighttime mm-hmm. painting that. Um, and when your friends did, it, you only see you know, kind of like the face. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a really haunting image of just catching part of what's beneath the surface. I, I, I'm sure I, I, got, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's a nice, it's an eerie and realistic yeah. uh, kind of look at things. Yeah, I mean, people yeah. who swum with coelacanths, it's sort of a similar thing because they have that, like, almost like that glowing eye looking at you, et cetera, and they're kind of, like, suspended in the dark or half in the dark and stuff, you know, or in the light of the you know, the video camera that's filming them, you know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a murky, creepy, and very beautiful and very terrifying world down there. You know, that's why, like, like when people talk about, like, sperm whales and how they dive down thousands and thousands of feet, you know, I, I mean, to me, I mean, maybe they're functioning on pure instinct, even though these are intelligent animals. But to me, they got to be the bravest thing on the planet. Because, I mean, think about it. Yeah, okay, you're a big whale. You might be 50, 60 feet long, weigh some similar tons, et cetera. But you're not indestructible. You're holding your breath. So if you, you know, you screw up, you're, you're going to drown. You're swimming thousands of feet down with pressure that can crush 
a nuclear submarine. So you're getting squeezed. You know, your lungs are compressing. Your rib cage is collapsing. They're designed to do that, but it, that's what's happening. And while this is going on and you're holding your breath, it's pitch black down there. There's no light once you get past the phototropic zone, okay? And so they're using sonar to see, holding your breath, getting squeezed, crushing pressure. It's freezing down there, and it's pitch black. And you're down there hunting for squid that are big enough to eat a person, you know? That's what you're doing for, to, to earn your, your right. bread and butter. I mean, that takes a lot of gullions, as they say, you know? And there are reports of squid that actually feed on sperm whales, anecdotal reports. So, you know, maybe sometimes you go down there and dinner turns out to be you, you know? It takes a pretty brazen mm -hmm. animal to go down by yourself, doing all that stuff, risking your life over and over again for a meal. To me, at least. I wouldn't want to do it. Okay, and you know, speaking of, you, know, you just ha happened to mention um, you know, the squids go going out uh, after a whale. You know, there's that uh, famous Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea mm. you know, movie scene. It's, you know, I think it's in the book too. Uh, with the uh, squid attack on the Nautilus. Um, you know, we heard about the uh, whale you know, attacking the Essex and mm -hmm. sinking it. Um, you know, what did – it was Jules uh, Verne um, basing that incident on – Something that he he observed reports, uh, you know, could, could that really happen? Uh, you know, do squids get that nasty and attack submarines? Uh, there are documented incidents of squid attacking ships, you know, even ships that were much much too big for them to possibly cause any harm to, et cetera. Um, so I mean, that has definitely happened. Eyewitness reports, et cetera. Uh, there are incidents where uh, I'm not sure about submarines. I know I read, 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 oh my God, I read one report where a sonar operator on a nuclear submarine, and I don't remember the depth or anything like that or any of the details beyond this, but um, he said that he had a, uh, a biologic, a verifiable sonar contact inbound that was about 100 feet long coming toward them at high speed. Uh, it sensed the submarine when they hit it with active sonar. It turned around, and it took off at a speed that he estimated it was like 60 miles an hour. So to me, that sounds like a, a gigantic squid that, mm -hmm. you know, without the long tentacles, like squid have eight arms, the shorter arms, you know, you picture, and then they have these feeding tentacles that are kind of concealed inside that shoot out, and it can be much longer. But without the long tentacles, you're talking about a 100-foot squid. That's a gigantic animal. And it comes at this submarine. It detects the submarine, which is much bigger than it, of course, and uh, it then realizes the submarine is a potential threat, maybe and thinks of it as a, a gigantic sperm whale or something like that, you know, because of the sonar and the shape, and it flees. You know, it would make sense. But to jet backward, they are able to do that. They have jet propulsion. They can, whoosh, you know, like an octopus. Mm -hmm. You know, they use water through their siphon, and they, you know, squeeze it out from their mantle through the siphon, and, and they take off. 
So the speed, the size, you know, that implies um, a very large, very, very large squid deep down. Um, there was one naval vessel, and this is documented. You can Google it easily. It's the USS Stein. And if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not just pulling this over the top of my head, it was a Knox-class destroyer escort ship. And it left out of its harbor. Um, and shortly after leaving harbor, its sonar went you know, inoperational. It stopped working, and they had to return to base for repairs. You know, the ship needs its sonar. It's a military vessel. It needs to be able to see what's down there, what's coming at it. Is there a threat, a submarine, a torpedo, other ships, you know, whatever. You know, icebergs, submerged reef, whatever. You know, they, they're blind out there otherwise. Mm -hmm. And uh, the sonar dome is at the front of the ship. And the sonar dome is where the, the hull cuts through the water as the ship's pushing through the water, and it's submerged. It's like this big bulb. You know, it looks like a, like a dome. Oh, that's what they call it, that, a sonar dome. And, uh, you know, from the pictures I've seen, the sonar dome is probably about, I'm going to say, 15 feet across, something like that, uh, on a guess. Well, it was damaged. It was covered with a protective no-foul rubber coating, and they found claws from a gigantic squid embedded in the coating. It had, the squid had, they must have passed over it. It probably interpreted the, you know, the stein as a large sperm whale attacking it. And, you know, the, I mean, the dome, probably the bulbous shape sort of looked like a sperm whale's head to begin with, and it attacked the stein. It lashed out and it tore into it, et cetera, and it damaged the sonar so that it went inoperational. It ripped itself free when it realized it wasn't a whale or it was something much bigger than it anticipated. It fled, and it left a bunch of the teeth that line the edges of their suckers. Like, their, their suckers have tiny teeth that go around it, and they don't just, like attach like a, an octopus is which are like the suction cups on the toy darts you use as a kid you know well, and well, right yeah i've had those on me firsthand by the way uh, octopuses are very hard to get off <laughs> but squid are worse because each of those suckers is lined with little teeth that cuts into you you know they can actually tear into your flesh and even maybe excise a piece so this thing you know the squid have these tiny teeth that go around on their suckers well the teeth that they pulled out of there were five times larger than any known squid species including arctutus and they have these teeth so some enormous squid attacked a destroyer escort ship damaged its sonar and then got out of dodge so it happens you know there are things out there and sometimes we're better off not knowing them seeing them etc but um Yeah, uh, uh, this is some fascinating information. And um, I tell jokes too, by the way, if you need it. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, do, okay. So, so, uh, do do you know when you're going to be starting your show so we can actually see you as a a serious uh uh. Personality? Yeah, dino yeah, di dinosaur researcher and comedian. <laughs> what was that dinosaur joke I came up with that they had a meme out of? It wasn't the spy oh the stegosaurus one. You know what a stegosaurus is? Yeah, uh that's uh an upcoming question too, but yeah, I I know what it is. Uh you know, they have those big yeah, triangular it, plates it, it, that stick up out of their backs, like yeah. a series of them, you know, et cetera, and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's why its name actually means plated lizard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so I had this, like, meme. It has, the, like, the standard meme that they use of the, a dinosaur standing up there doing stand-up comedy and stuff, and he tells a joke, and he's laughing, and it falls flat. So it says, like, you know, 
Um, and I invented this. I'm taking full credit. It says uh, something like, why was the Stegosaurus thrown out of the buffet? Because he brought his own plates. I don't get it. <laughs> or was it, why was he banned from the buffet? Because he brought his own plates. You know, the plates on his back. Uh, never uh-huh. mind. Wow, it was a tough crowd. My God. See, this is why I don't do stand-up comedy. But, um, yeah, we're looking to get my, my show finally started. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just been so much stuff. And it's not even the pandemic. I'm just so inundated, you know, finishing a novel, getting that out there, doing pre-publicity for it, publicity for it, you know, starting the next project, uh, the blogs. I mean, that, like that Spinosaurus piece that you're talking about, that took me two days to do. You know, a lot of research and work and writing involved mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And there's only so many hours in the day. I'm a dad. I got these two giant cats walking around, running my life. You know, don't even get me started on being married. I mean, it's like, you know, one thing after another. So I want to get the show out there. Whether I don't know if we're going to do one a month or every like two or three weeks, something like that. But, you know, I, I think it's going to be great because we're going to be able to bring some great people out there. We're going to be able to talk about some really interesting topics, not just paleontology, but, but cryptids, cryptozoologies sightings, you know, theories I have on past sightings, you know, stuff that goes back a long time, anecdotal things, et cetera. You know, we'll be able to cover a lot of interesting topics and, you know, really get people involved in it, you know. So I'm looking forward to it. But I'm, I'm hoping, actually, maybe by month's end, that would be great if we could finally get this thing off the ground. Yeah, it, 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 I find it a fascinating subject. Um and I think when you know, you know, we've done our Mothman shows. We had Joe Taylor as a guest. You know, uh, you know people really liked his uh, look at uh, so many North American uh, uh, dinosaurs from uh, Texas. Um, and, and, and you know, I just think you know, the popularity of uh, Jurassic Park over what the last uh, 20 years or so that it's been probably longer than that Um, there's a market for uh, for it people are interested in it and we want to wish you uh, you best of luck on that it really is a uh, captivating subject and you know, one of the, the Stegosaurus comment I was going to uh, work I had in my notes was, you know, ancient aliens has said you know in a little episode of you know, like the foundation of uh, was it Anchor Watt that has um, a uh, carving of a uh, Stegosaurus. Um, um, my friend Bruce Cunningham uh, verified that it's there. He's toward the um, you know, this thousand-year-old temple. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like at this massive church uh, complex was built about a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, there's a really accurate depiction of a stegosaurus. You know, just say eye level. Did, you know, uh, were they walking around the jungles of uh, where it was like Cambodia uh, up until fairly recently? 
Well, I mean, so you're you're saying, you know, could this something like this still be alive based on? Well, the, uh, uh, did did the artist see a Stegosaurus walking around a thousand you know, uh, about a thousand A.D. when the the uh, temple was built? This was, and this is in Cambodia, as you said. I th- it's like uh, I. Like Cambodia, Vietnam, and like that southeastern Asia. I, I forget exactly where. Uh, I, I think it's on the side of Angkor Wat, wherever that's okay. located. I mean, there's probably people well, in the audience yelling, hey, Mark, it's, it's in this country. I, I, I may have the wrong country, but I think it's Angkor Wat is okay. the temple. But, well, but, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just. Uh, well, yeah, Scott Martis, explain. when he had me on the show talking about Spinosaurus, he had brought up the possibility, and he had mentioned sightings of uh, something, and I don't, I think it might have been in the Congo or something, and it wasn't Mokele Mabembe, but um, he didn't mention about a temple, but he said sightings and drawings and stuff like that of something that looked like an aquatic Stegosaurus. He had been mentioning, and he had, was proposing the question of whether it would be possible that some sort of small relic population of evolved Spinosaurus or Spinosaurid had survived to the present, and perhaps that these sightings were, you know, not necessarily Stegosaurus, which is a terrestrial uh, herbivore, but perhaps uh, an aquatic or primarily aquatic piscivore, or even entirely pisc- you know, aquatic now, animal like Spinosaurus. And, I mean, I, I don't know enough about the topic to comment on it one way or the other, but, I mean, if somebody a thousand years ago, like you said, sculpted something and it wasn't just, you know, their imagination, like Kukul Khan or something, you know, this flying serpent, um, and they based it on something and there are other sightings, then, I mean, then you have to look at the possibility of, well, what are these people seeing? You know, I could see a Spinosaurus-type animal being interpreted along those lines, um, you know, I mean, the, you know, you got a lot of stuff sticking up out of your back, et cetera. If you're in the water, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, I don't, I'm not well versed enough in it to really, you know, give you details like some of the other stuff I've been you know, rambling yeah. about. Well, yeah. Well, you know, you also get that. Um, it almost sounds like a brontosaurus uh, described in the Book of Job. It doesn't. It's like a. Uh, Smaller version, but you know that was what written three thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, what kind of huge uh, animal was you know, just kind of hanging out along the uh, River Jordan uh, banks? Well, in, I mean, you have in the book you know, of Job. Big, you have big crocodiles, obviously. Like a lot of people think that the yeah. behemoth uh, or another yeah. leviathan is based on sightings of huge crocodiles. You know, talking about like it's, you know, the armored back and things of that nature. Maybe crocodiles bigger than we know today. You know, who knows? Yeah, it's like a tail as large as a Lebanon cedar. All right, yeah, that's a. Uh, it might be a little bit of hyperbole, but it's. Obviously, a pretty sizable animal. I, you know, uh, you know what, you know what's, you know, what a cryptid's doing in the the Bible. It just, mm-hmm. it's just interesting. And you get that, uh, that little shark eel 
combination thing that was filmed, uh, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago. Do you ever see that? It, it, um, it was like a small shark, like dinosaur shark that was caught off the coast of Asia. Is it the uh, frilled shark you're talking about? Uh, uh, maybe, uh, maybe that's the n- name of it. It, it. it looked like it had a uh, eel-type tail. Yeah, and, and it had like uh, a weird sort of face, like almost like a lizard-like set of jaws yeah. where the maxilla yeah. mandible were about the same size, so it didn't have that undershot jaw and stuff. Yeah, I, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with them, but I mean, I, I pulled it up right here while you're talking. I know the name and all that, but yeah, it has like sort of like a serpentine-looking body and stuff, um, and it, it says they lunges for like a snake, you know, et cetera. So it's, mm-hmm. it's unusual for a shark species. You know, but yeah. I mean, that just goes to show you, I mean, it's not a giant animal like the mega mouse shark or some of these other ones that they found, but it does show you that there are adaptations to even sharks that we're, we're not really familiar with. So, right. right. You know, yeah, it, 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 it's really a fascinating study. And, you know, I, I think you uh, made us very much aware of um, you know, a, a lot more of these, you know, cryptids, you know, possibly surviving dinosaurs in uh, today's oceans. It's, it's been a really fun uh, discuss, discussion. And, you know, there was also, uh, also had in my notes, you know, Barbara just reminded me about, you know, Gobekli Tepe also had, uh, on some of the carvings there, there were some animals that are now extinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I was just, you know, just going to no, throw that out I mean, there. There's like how, a dodo bird or something. Which, which we're talking about from North America, like megafauna? No, no, no uh, the Gobekli Tepe site in Turkey okay. and on the pillar, uh, you know, like there were all these tea pillars that were, T-shaped pillars that were buried, and some of them have uh, some animals that actually look like they were uh, extinct, but but they were alive about uh, ten, eleven thousand years ago when they were uh, carved onto the pillars. Well, that's. I mean, I, I'd love to see information about that. I know that, like yeah. for example, like the mammoth, um, the last mm-hmm. mammoth only went extinct like around four thousand years ago. Uh, there were isolated populations of them, like off Siberia and stuff like that. So I mean, some wow. you know, yeah, some prehistoric you know, mammalian life has been around a lot more recently than people think. You know, I mean, ten thousand years is in the bigger scheme of things with time. Or, you know, with evolution, it's just like a a grain of sand. You know, ten thousand, twelve thousand years ago on this continent, we had lions the size of cows practically, and Colombian mammoths that were bigger than African elephants and the giant short-faced bear and I mean you name it it mm-hmm. was like you know like like an outdoor life dream or something if you worked for outdoor life magazine but uh can you imagine <laughs> you know like, yeah I got I got chased by this Irish elk and uh, I was up a tree and then this saber-toothed cat came up 
And then I was running from that. <laughs> and then there was this Gleeptodont, you know, that thing with the big shell and the spike tail on the end. It looks like a, an ankylosaurus. He tried to get me. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and everywhere you turn, there's something else, you know, an endless parade right. of gigantic creatures. Like, like, hi, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, you know, but, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, we live in exciting yes, it, times, but I'm sure they were more exciting, you know, a few millennia yeah, back. It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, you're making me have flashbacks of you know, idolizing uh, Chaka and being chased by the Slee Stacks. You know, and so <laughs> I have the, the entire series on DVD, by the way. Marshall, Will, and Holly. Oh, wait, I'll get in trouble with that. Never mind. Okay. On a routine yeah, might be expedition. It is probably. I'll be in so much trouble. Yeah, I used to when I was a kid. I loved that show. You know, no, it, it was it was a good one. I I, I enjoyed Saturday mornings to see Land of the Lost and West Wind. Mm-hmm. I I was big with the show Space Giants, which was like this sort of like kaiju type series from Japan. You know, had this like family. That. Goldar, Silvar, and Gam, you know, and they were like this family of like robots with antennas coming out of their heads, but they were like people sort of, you know, and they were fighting monsters and all that. And Goldar, he was like this 50-foot tall robot with like long hair and antennas and stuff. And uh, I used to argue with my dad when I was like five years old. I'd be like, Goldar's real. Look, he's real. That's not real. It's fake. And I'm like, look. And then you see this giant gold foot like stepping on the human-sized bad guys. So I'm like, see, there's his foot. Right there. He's, that's paper mache. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Out comes the belt. <laughs> I have issues. This is the medicine okay. talk. I remember I told you the doctors okay. gave me a lot of pills. I took 12 pills at dinner time. all right? So I'm not responsible right, right. for anything I say right now. Okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, Max, we're down to about the last uh, 90 seconds or so. Uh, you, know, you want to give out your website or anything else you want uh, oh sure. Mentioned the last, and then we need a wrap. No problem, brother. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, what I like to do with, with readers is first up, my website has a lot of stuff on there, like the Paleo Gallery is free advertising for all those artists and stuff. If you go on either maxhawthorne.com or cronusrising.com, Cronus with a K, or on Amazon if you just want to look for the books. But the Cronus Rising series is the books that I write. But if you go on there and you click on the free book links, there's a whole bunch of free excerpts from the different novels that people can go on, try out the stuff, see how they like it. There's audible versions, all sorts of things like that. You know, it lets people, like, get a taste of stuff without, like, really jumping into things, et cetera. You know, but I mean, I, I'm very well-reviewed, and people seem to enjoy the books. And, you know, new readers are always welcome. There's a monthly newsletter if people want to sign up for it that has like sneak peeks into upcoming projects, book excerpts from the new book and things of that nature. You know, it's good stuff. I always enjoy you know talking to new people. Okay, uh, you know, Barbara, just let me know uh, that, that there's a minute left, so might as well just say goodnight. Th- thank you so much. We'll be back. Uh, Thursday night for a special show at 10 o'clock, and we'll see everyone next weekend. Uh, Thank you, Barbara, for producing, and thanks, Max, and we'll see you Thursday night. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here, guys. Have a great night.